This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Just a couple weeks ago, as Russia's military lined Ukraine's border, there was a fear that even if Vladimir Putin didn't stage a full invasion, he could put enough pressure on the West to crack delicate European alliances. But what we're seeing now is something else entirely. Berlin has now agreed to a major armaments delivery, including anti-tank weapons, surface-to-air missiles, and rocket-propelled grenades. Well, for Sweden, this is a very principled and important decision. We haven't uh, given direct military support since 1939. We're strengthening once more our sanctions. First, we are shutting down the EU airspace for Russians. Even FIFA, the governing body of soccer's World Cup, has barred Russia from international competition. It seems as though the atrocities being perpetrated by the Russian forces in Ukraine have brought unprecedented cooperation between nations around the world. But how effective are the actions being taken, and how far are nations willing to go? I'm David Rind. You usually hear me over on CNN's Five Things podcast. While my colleague Clarissa Ward is in the field covering the breaking news out of Ukraine, I'll be filling in for her here to help make sense of the latest developments and provide the context you need to understand them. In today's episode, my conversation with CNN's Jim Shudo about how the international community is responding to Russia. From CNN, this is Tug of War. Ukraine has been mounting a fierce defense against Russia, but for Ukraine to continue holding off the invasion, it will require the help of the international community. On Tuesday, CNN's Matthew Chance got to speak with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky as part of an exclusive interview with CNN and Reuters. Now, the interview was conducted in Zelensky's wartime bunker. Matthew said the place was lined with sandbags and there were armed guards everywhere. You sent your delegation to meet the Russians for talks. Yeah. Did anything substantial come out of that? Is there any hope, as the world watches, for diplomacy? They decided uh, to begin to speak about this situation. And I wanted, I, I really wanted, and I asked them, so you have to speak, first of all, you, everybody has to stop, stop fighting, and to go to that point from where it it was beginning, yeah. yes, it began five, six, today six, six days ago. Yes. I think th there are principal things you can do it, and that is a very important moment. If you do this, and if those side is ready, it means that they are ready for the peace. If they don't ready, it means that you're just, you know, just... Mm, how, Wasting, your time. wasting time. And do you think you're wasting your time or do you think they're ready? We'll see. According to Russian state media, there's another round of talks set for Wednesday. 
To help us make sense of the international response to Russia's actions, I want to talk to Jim Shudo. He is CNN's chief national security correspondent and the author of the book The Shadow War on Russian and Chinese efforts to undermine the United States. So, Jim, we're talking Tuesday afternoon, Ukraine time. Where are you now? I'm in Lviv, Ukraine, in the western part of the country. Uh, my team, the CNN team, is staying at a hotel here, which is right in the, the sort of old city center. And we've been here in Lviv. I've been here in Lviv for a little over a week. And before that, I was in the capital, Kiev. So you've been there. You've been kind of taking this all in. So I, I want to start here. Has Vladimir Putin, do you think he's kind of been surprised by the show of unity that you know, NATO allies, the U.S., have kind of mounted to this uh, Russian aggression? I think there's a good argument that he has, uh, because going into this, there really wasn't unity on, on how to respond to him in general, and even specifically around Ukraine, both in terms of his claims to the East, uh, but also his, his broader saber-rattling around Europe, NATO, etc. You, you had some countries who said, listen, we've got to deal with the man, we've got to do business with him. You had others who were more, more nervous, particularly the Eastern members of NATO. And then you had others in the West, such as the UK and the US, who tended to, to share that view. But there was division. And then there was division over what price Europe and the US were willing to pay, right? How far they were willing to go in terms of cutting off investments and uh, access, for instance, to Nord Stream 2. That changed, right? It changed in a very short time frame. Um, and because it changed so quickly, it, it would be hard to imagine that Putin was not surprised, right? Because I think many, even the West were surprised, right, about that unity. So can we take a step back here? Because uh, I, I know that, you know, a lot of people have been following this closely. But can we do like a, a uh, just a real brief explainer on, on NATO? What is it? Who's in it briefly? And, and why does Vladimir Putin, why does it get under his skin so much? Yeah. So NATO was started after World War II during the Cold War to uh, build an alliance among the U.S. and its European allies to counter Russia, right? well, at the time, the Soviet Union. Uh, and you can argue it won the Cold War, right, in many ways. So then in 91, the Soviet Union collapses, and, and NATO, in the wake of that, had a bit of a crisis of mission. W what was its mission? Because the Soviet Union's over, so therefore there's no threat, right? So what are we doing? 9-11 mm. gave it sort of a new lease on life. Uh, it, it was the first time that NATO invoked their Article 5, which is their mutual defense treaty to come to the defense of the United States after the 9-11 attacks and the, and the mission in, in Afghanistan for, you know, was it was a NATO mission. But, you know, that, that was a new mission in effect, right, for, for NATO. It wasn't focused on Russia, but in the last 20 years, under the leadership of Vladimir Putin, R Russia has become more and more aggressive. And there have been those in NATO who say, well, that old mission doesn't seem so old anymore. Mm. It seems it doesn't seem like it's from another time. It seems like it may be necessary today. And by the way, you know, we, talking about disunity, that was not necessarily a unified view. There were some who were more forward leaning uh, than others. And by the way, the U.S. had a president, former president in Trump, who was convinced that maybe we didn't need NATO anymore and constantly attacked it and questioned the, you know, whether the U.S. would really come to the defense of its allies. You've seen in the last week the doubters come on board, right, and say, wait a second, Russia is dangerous. And not only is it dangerous to Ukraine, 
but it's dangerous to Europe. And that, you know, we talk often about, you know, pe- people give this impression that Putin is 10 feet tall. He's the brilliant strategist. He always gets it right. He's playing three-dimensional chess, always beats us. But not only might he be surprised by the unity of, of, of Europe, for instance, the economic sanctions, but if his goal was to weaken NATO, he seems to have done the opposite. And a lot of that in the last week in terms of unity. And he might, he might be facing an expanding NATO, right? Because a couple countries, Sweden and Finland, that had stayed out making some bones about maybe they might be in. You know? Right, right. I, I wanted to ask about uh, that and, and the specifically with Ukraine wanting to be in NATO and wanting to be in the EU. What is, mm-hmm. what is kind of their rationale there? And what is the idea on the other side for not kind of bringing them in, giving them that more of that assistance that, yeah. th- that they're asking for that they can't do because they're not part of these, these groups. So why has Ukraine, and by the way, two successive elected presidents of Ukraine, uh, Poroshenko and now Zelensky, who had a mandate, it seemed, based on their election, to move Ukraine not necessarily into uh, the West, but closer to the West, right? It sought an association agreement with the EU, uh, closer ties with NATO, certainly raised the prospect of joining. But to, to, to be honest, while NATO never said no, it never said yes either. And, and the, the basic understanding was it would be many years for Ukraine to meet the standard to join. But it's important to NATO to say, hey, it's not Russia's decision whether they join or not. It's up to the, the member states and the country that wants to be in. And, and you know, for, for Ukrainians and Ukrainian leaders, that's partly they want uh, the benefits of having the rule of law of the EU and, and European economies. And they want the benefits of this, the security guarantees of not having Mother Russia right hanging over their heads. Uh, and you can argue that the invasion currently underway in this country right now, you know, makes that understandable, right? You know, as to, as to why a country might want to be involved. Now, the argument you will hear some make is that NATO expanded too far into the East after the class collapse of the Soviet Union and kind of goaded Russia into this, right? And Americans, you'll hear Americans make that argument. In fact, you heard American politicians and members of the right-wing media make that argument up until a few days ago to say this was really NATO's fault. The pushback on that is that the truth of Putin is that while he says it is NATO that makes me want a country like Ukraine, he says a lot more than that. If you look at his speech last week, he claims, he claims Ukraine is not a country. Never was. Always part of Russia. That has nothing to do with whether Ukraine may someday join NATO. He doesn't believe Ukraine exists today. He doesn't believe the Ukrainian people are anything but Russians under a different name. And that the borders, he says, were just made up, you know, and he could violate them. And remember that this is, you know, this is not the first country he's invaded in the last 22 decades since he's been leader. He's invaded in fact, he invaded Ukraine in 2014 as well. If you remember the little green men in Crimea, he invaded Georgia in 2008. Two brutal invasions of Chechnya going back to the late 1990s. I would say, listen to what they say. And when you, when you hear what he says, that's the argument he makes. Right. It's a little more existential than just NATO. Uh, yeah. you, you talked about the doubters coming on board. We've seen Germany mm. um, really up their... Um, you know, military commitments and, and the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, seen Switzerland uh, 
famously neutral, not neutral here, yeah. um, really going after the money of Putin. What kind of tipped the scales there in bringing them um, and others so vocally into this? I think it was seeing the tanks, tanks roll across the border. Up until the day it happened, you had so many people say Putin wouldn't do it. He wouldn't go that far, right? And then he did. And then those tanks kept rolling. And they started killing people. You know, there's no substitute for cold, hard reality. Um, and that turned a lot of countries in very short order, and Germany being one of them, because Germany was, you know, a, a resistor on Nord Stream 2, this massive pipeline that would increase Russia's energy leverage over Europe. They did not want to send lethal weapons to Ukraine. You know, they famously sent helmets while others, like, like the U.S. included, sending Javelin missiles, uh, anti-tank missiles, and, and stingers, uh, but that's changed. Switzerland notable as well, um, you know, classically neutral. But you look at other places now because the, the economic penalties cut across the range. One thing is Russian planes can't fly over most of Europe right now, and it's been interesting to see the countries get on board. Uh, Monaco. There's a lot of Russian money hiding in Monaco right now. The oligarchs love to vacation in Monaco, right? They do. And they bury a lot of their money there. You know, the rumor is that that's where Putin's mistress is. Mm. So when, when a place like Monaco takes part in these economic sanctions and, and the overflight rules, that, that hurts. You know, London, a lot of Russian properties and soccer clubs, right? Think Chelsea, owned by Russian oligarchs. Uh when you start cutting those and blocking those financial paths and travel paths, those have real consequences. Right. So um, let's talk about uh, a country that's not on board with helping Ukraine, and that's Belarus. Uh, of course, we've seen this long military convoy heading towards Kiev, and you know, a lot of the thought is a lot of these Russian troops are right across the border in Belarus, and they kind of have a path now um, to the capital. W where does Belarus fit in? here with this? And how much could this escalate if they get even more directly involved with, with military operations? Well, big picture, Belarus, like Ukraine, is part of Russia, in Putin's view. He doesn't look at them as independent countries. He looks at them as ethnically Russian, Russian-speaking, and therefore mine. That's the way he looks at them. Those borders don't matter. What it shows you is that it's all connected, right? You remember the, the election last year and the popular protests that followed you know, in a stolen election in the view of Belarusian dissidents, that that was a Russian game there, right? To steal the election back and crush any opposition to it for Putin's guy there. Um, and now you say, well, is that just isolated? No, because Putin's guy there has now allowed tens of thousands of Russian forces to, quote unquote, have exercises there for weeks and now roll roll across the border down south as part of this three-directional invasion of the country. These are, these are pieces on the chessboard that, that Vladimir Putin has moved and is now using. You know, he's now staging an attack, and Belarus is part of that plan. Belarus seemed like Russia's only hope for an ally in this fight. But there is one superpower that has been pretty cagey about its stance, China. After the break, we'll talk about their role in all this. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Okay, so... We were talking about Belarus. They're obviously aligned with the Russians uh, pretty directly. It's a little more complicated when it comes to China, right? Mm. What is their response to the invasion, Ben? It's been interesting. Um, I don't know if muted is the word. It's not quite fence-sitting because Putin and Xi have been moving closer in recent years. You know, it's interesting. I, I wrote a book you mentioned, Shadow War, almost three years ago, 2019, and, and the, the sort of thesis was, right, that both Russia and China are fighting a, a shadow war, a war just below the threshold of a shooting war with the U.S. on a number of fronts. They're using the same tactics, but not quite working together because they have their own competitive interests. The change since then is that Russia and China, those interests have overlapped more and they've been doing more together, including military exercises. They've been meeting, they've been backing each other up more. Um, and there, she met Putin um, recently, and they released a statement where, where she, in effect, seemed to endorse Putin's uh, argument about Ukraine. Now, since then, China has not in, quite endorsed the invasion. You sense a little bit of discomfort in their reactions. They abstained in the Security Council, for instance, in the condemnation, so therefore not rejecting it, but also not endorsing it. Yeah, they've said, you know, Ukraine has a right to sovereign, Yeah, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Exactly. Now, they're not sanctioning Russia right now. They might very well bail Russia out to some degree economically, right? Buy more of their oil, you know, give them paths to, you know, find their ways to international lending, you know, all the kinds of things that are being blocked off by the U.S. and Europe right now. But they're not quite 100% on board with the game plan, which is interesting. Yeah, how does that play out for other Western countries who, are, who have been dubious of, of China and their motives? How does this conflict, how can you see that spinning out in terms of those relationships? Well, we know uh, the New York Times is reporting that the Biden administration made a real effort to get China on board more explicitly against this invasion, and that didn't happen. Hmm. But they also didn't get the, the kind of flag-waving endorsement that it seemed Putin might have wanted here may still be enough for him. I mean, the question going forward, as this gets worse, as we see Russia bulldozing Ukrainian cities, right, and killing civilians uh, and taking over a sovereign country, does China take a minute 
right, and say we're not on board? And do they back that up, right? Would they do they relieve give relief to Russia less in the economic sphere, and so on, or even weapons? Like you know, one change with Germany. Germany has in not just energy ties with Russia, but a lot of European countries selling Russia arms. That stops. Who's gonna Who's gonna help Russia replace? the tanks and armored personnel carriers and weapons that got blown up here? Does China step in for that? You know, these, these are the questions going forward. Right. And, and do you think China is, is learning anything from this invasion in terms of their goals in, in their side of the world? It's a great question because a lot of folks have, and I think rightfully so, made a connection between uh, Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan. Does China look at, at, at the penalties being inflicted on Russia right now economically and the aid, the military aid going to Ukraine and say, huh, we couldn't waltz into Taiwan quite as easily as we might have imagined. Mm. Now, like Putin, she might make the same decision and say those costs are worth it. We don't know. But you have to imagine it enters into the calculus. Sure. We knew, obviously, on the ground, an invasion would be bloody and horrific. And so far, it has been, even though the Ukrainians have been, you know, spirited in, in their defense. And, and we don't know, quite know how this will play out. But no matter what happens, do you think that, you know, even if the Ukrainians are able to repel an, an occupation of sorts, that this could kind of reshape the, the West and the, and the world for years to come? Like, what kind of implications do you think this has, uh, regardless of the outcome? At the least, it has fundamentally changed the West relationships with Russia, and, and not just diplomatically, politically, economically, because it, it's, it's hard to see how a lot of these things are walked back short of a full-on retreat by Russian forces, which, which doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Hmm. But there are more harrowing scenarios. If you listen to someone like Fiona Hill, who, who knows Russia well, uh, that there's real danger here of escalation with the West and direct conf confrontation with the West on a number of fronts, even here in Ukraine. Yes, the U.S. does not have boots on the ground. Uh, you don't have U.S. NATO fighter jets over Ukraine fighting Russian fighter jets. But you have NATO weapons going to these fighters that are, that are destroying and killing, destroying Russian vehicles and aircraft and killing Russian soldiers in numbers. Does Putin view that as a direct attack on him and his forces? And does he believe he can respond in kind, not just against Ukrainian forces, but the West? Does he? You know, if you listen to his words about not believing Ukraine is a country, there are three other countries, and it's not limited to that, that he doesn't believe are independent countries either. Those are the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. They're NATO members, so they have the protection of the alliance and mutual defense but does Putin calculate? I don't think they're going to act on that. I don't really think an American president's going to send American soldiers to die in Estonia. So I'm going to take one of them. Hmm. And by the way, I don't think they're countries. So I have a right to do it. Right. You do have escalation scenarios that are really darn scary. And the nuclear question has been raised and not by alarmists, hmm. by folks who know Russia well. And I hate to say it because it sounds like hyperbole, but smarter people than me describe these scenarios as potentially, you know, coming to be. Nuclear war is not impossible out of this or a nuclear exchange or a conflict. It's scary to utter those words. I only utter them to you because folks with direct knowledge of the way this guy operates and 
and so on do. And that's uh, it's scary to hear. Um, it's scary to hear. But we were definitely, at a minimum, in a different place. Yeah, for sure. It's grim, but, you know, certainly something to consider. So I guess, where does this leave us, Jim? Is there is there an off-ramp here for Putin, something that would satisfy yeah. him? Or, you know, if he doesn't see Ukraine as a country, you know, how do you square that? So we don't know. Uh, the prevailing assessment is that Putin will not give up without taking all of Ukraine, or most of it, perhaps two-thirds of it, right, Kiev to the east, but that's basically the country because it's a rump state to the west at that point without its capital. Um, so if he follows through on that, what is the escalation in responses from the West, and then how does he respond to them? If you look, and I've seen smart folks make the comparison to 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was an off-ramp there, and that was an exchange. And you might even say a face-saving one, where Khrushchev took his missiles out of Cuba, and, and the, the U.S. and the West took nuclear missiles out of Turkey, which, which Russia considered too close to home. Mm. Is there an equivalent here? The trouble is the, the U.S. and Western position, you know, if NATO were the issue, and we've already said it's not really the issue because I don't believe Ukraine is the country, but if NATO were that off-ramp to say, okay, for five years, no NATO membership for Ukraine, or no NATO membership and, and both, you know, Russia agrees never to invade, right, or something like that, is it? Is there an off-ramp like that? Those kinds of ideas have been floated. The trouble is, to, to this point, Putin hasn't shown any interest short of the whole country. Right. And Ukraine, and by the way, NATO, haven't shown any interest in granting that demand to Russia because they say it's a core principle that it's, that it's up to the members. And now the dynamic is such that Ukraine, even more than ever, wants association with the West, you know, for its own defense, which you can understand. So the I suppose you could argue that the, the positions on each side have become more entrenched. So it would have to be smarter people than me to figure out an off-ramp because the direction lines right now are not positive. Right. A lot uh, up in the air at this point, for sure. Jim Shudo in Lviv, Ukraine. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you so much, too. Thank you for joining us for this special episode of Tug of War. We'll be releasing new episodes every Sunday and Wednesday. And for real-time updates on the crisis, subscribe to CNN 5 Things wherever you listen. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by me, David Rind, along with Audrey Horwitz, Nathan Miller, Paolo Ortiz, and Shelby Vest. Felicia Patinkin is the senior producer, and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Andrew Morse, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Elizabeth Roberts. I'm David Rind. Talk to you next time. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.